Dogs are probably the best-known domesticated animal that humans interact with on a regular basis, but we've also domesticated pigs, goats, cows, sheep, chickens, zebus, which are kind of a humped cattle found in India, guinea pigs, donkeys, ducks, honeybees, camels, water buffalo, horses, silk moths, which are used to make silk, pigeons, geese, yaks, llamas, ferrets, doves, turkeys, goldfish, rabbits, lab rats, minks, hedgehogs, guppies, and probably my favorite on the list, the fancy mouse, which is apparently the actual name of a species of mouse that's been domesticated in China. This is a very incomplete list of the animals we humans have domesticated, and the list is even longer if you include the animals that we interact with regularly in other ways. According to the field of zooarchaeology, which is the study of animal remains, kind of like archaeology for non-humans, there are three classes of domesticated animals. Commensals, which have been adapted to a human niche, like dogs and guinea pigs. Prey animals that we use for food, like cows, sheep, pigs, and goats. And animals that are used as non-food resources, like horses, camels, and donkeys. There is also a long list of semi-domesticated and maybe domesticated animals that we humans have been trying to fit into our new biological world order, but have only managed to do so with limited success. This list includes reindeer, attics, which is a kind of curly-horned ram that lives in Egypt, oryx, which is also from Egypt and is kind of a long-horned mule deer, Elephants, mandarin ducks from China, the Egyptian mongoose, Asiatic honeybees, leeches, the common hill mina, which is a talking bird from Greece, snails, several types of cockatoo, great cormorants, crickets, swans, quails, carp, goldfinches, capybaras, alligators, moose, ostriches, elk, skunks, fruit flies, lovebirds, long-tailed chinchillas, water fleas, African clawed frogs, sea monkeys, otherwise known as brine shrimp, ball pythons, American bison, poison dart frogs, and the truly charming Madagascar hissing cockroach. Now, semi-domesticated can mean many things. Some of the animals on that list are kept as pets, others are in zoos, and still others have long-standing relationships with humans out in the wild. But domestication implies a lot more than that. The best, fairly complete definition I could find came straight from the Wikipedia page for domestication. Quote, Domestication is a sustained multi-generational relationship in which one group of organisms assumes a significant degree of influence over the reproduction and care of another group to secure a more predictable supply of resources from that second group. End quote. In short, although we've long been close with capybaras, and why wouldn't we be? They're adorable. Please look up videos of capybaras doing things if you have never done so before. We do not exert enough influence on their reproduction or breeding for certain capybara traits over other capybara traits to consider them fully domesticated. 
Dogs, on the other hand, are incredibly diverse, very different creatures compared to the wolves that they've all evolved from. We made that whole species weird as hell, and we did it to fit them into different niches in the human world. There was a common breed of dog in England back in the 16th through the 19th century called the turnspit dog, which was intentionally bred to make it more useful in the kitchen. It had squat little legs and a long little body, and it loved to run all day. Imagine something like a terrier or a corgi, but ultra common and used by chefs. They would put them in little dog-sized hamster wheels attached to a turning spit in the oven, and then they'd have the dog just run and run, which in turn kept the spit turning. This breed was optimized for use in British kitchens, and it died out soon after more mechanical means of achieving that same end became commonly available. A very different relationship than what we have with capybaras, who mostly just totter around being friendly to everyone, and they are sometimes kept in zoos where they do the same, but which have never been intentionally bred for any particular purposes. We do not have specific breeds of capybara that we use to turn the spits in our kitchens. Interestingly, by some definitions, cats are actually not domesticated, or at least not in the same way or to the same degree as other animals that we keep as pets. From a piece in Ars Technica entitled, Cats are an extreme outlier among domestic animals, quote, Unlike dogs, whose bodies and temperaments have transformed radically during the roughly 30,000 years we've lived with them, domestic cats are almost identical to their wild counterparts, physically and genetically. House cats also show none of the typical signs of animal domestication, such as infantilization of facial features, decreased tooth size, and docility. Wild cats are neither social nor hierarchical, which also makes them hard to integrate into human communities. End quote. According to a study that is the focus of that article, cats have been hopping rides on ships and living in human settlements for thousands of years, and we kind of just let them come along for the ride because they hunted pests like rats, which was useful. But they spread around the world of their own volition, riding on boats with Vikings and other seafaring civilizations then leaving when the boat landed, and breeding with local wild cats. This led to a wide variety of cat sizes and colors and looks, but that breeding wasn't controlled by humans like it was with dogs. Not until very recently, that is. The blotched tabby breed was apparently the first, or one of the first, breeds that was intentionally selected for and bred by humans, because they are super cute and because of their relatively friendly demeanor. This breed only sprang into existence around 1,000 years ago, whereas dogs were being bred by humans somewhere between 10,000 and 36,000 years ago. Even semi-domesticated animals like capybaras are rad and potentially useful, but fully domesticated animals have become something more like tools. Horses grant humans who ride them amazing new powers. Fungi can be coaxed into producing miracle cures. And llamas can produce wool to clothe us, they can carry our stuff, and they can even feed us. These creatures are latent augmentations to humans in human society, to the point that we barely even think of them as such, as separate from us and our societies and our systems. What I want to talk about today are everyday tools and technologies that passively aid us, without us having to think about them, and in particular those that are 
at the fringe of adoption, but which could someday change us and how we live in very important ways. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. So the article I want to start from today comes from Ars Technica, and it's entitled Researchers Optimize a Powered Exoskeleton to Cut Energy Used in Walking. This article is interesting because it demonstrates how a relatively simple rig can improve the efficiency of even a simple task like walking. In the case of the lower leg-based exoskeleton featured in this article, the improvements are gained by optimizing how and where torque is exerted in the wearer's step, meaning it doesn't use much power and it wants to ensure that the power that is being utilized is being spent optimally. And that's not easy because everyone walks differently and walks differently under different circumstances. Your foot falls one way when you're walking uphill and another way when you're walking along the beach and another way when you are carrying something and walking on a flat surface. To solve that problem, this simple exoskeleton pays attention to how you walk and then uses what's called a genetic algorithm, which is an algorithm that improves itself over time over the course of multiple testing generations, which in this case means different footfall measurement periods, and it uses what it learns from those periods to optimize how it applies the power it outputs to best augment your step so that you use less energy to travel the same distance. In this specific case, wearers of the exoskeleton would walk on a treadmill for about an hour as the software tracked their steps. It would then update what it knew about the wearer and optimize itself for the next round. Researchers found that repeating this process four times resulted in the best outcome, which amounted to a 14 to 40, that's 40% drop in the energy wearers used for walking. And that was when they were only wearing one exoskeleton brace, so chances are decent that the benefits would be even greater if they were wearing one of these things on each of their legs. The optimization software found that most of their test subjects could be aided with a little added power mid-stride, but that the timing of when that power was optimally added differed fairly dramatically, and also notable was that in many cases the exoskeleton used less energy once the software was optimized, meaning that the wearer saw far better outcomes and used far less energy for walking once they had allowed this brace and its software to sync up with their walking habits, but the device itself also consumed less energy as it learned more. It became more efficient, not just more effective, once the algorithm had gone through four generations of algorithmic evolution. Exoskeletons are often touted in pop culture as kind of these super soldier tools, something more like Iron Man's armor, than a humble brace that helps a person save energy while walking. If developed correctly, I think we'll probably see more exoskeletons of the strength augmentation for soldiers variety. But we'll also see maybe strength augmentation for the UPS delivery guy and walking optimizers for our grandparents and maybe sleeves that help us cut down on repetitive motion injuries like carpal tunnel syndrome. Many exoskeletons that are available do not even require power to operate. Instead of adding extra muscle 
generated by electricity to ours, they instead redistribute the energy from our natural motion more efficiently and effectively, allowing us to get more done with what's already there. They optimize our movement rather than amplifying our effort. Imagine for a moment all the aches and pains and syndromes that might be solved or remedied or cured or lessened if we were all wearing such devices at all times, or even just at the times of greatest bodily stress. There's a way in which we could use technology that would make us weaker as a consequence if we ceased using our bodies completely in an unnatural way and as a result began to atrophy. But exoskeletons help us move in an optimal fashion, and that helps us to use our muscles better and to improve our posture and to ease bodily tensions. And this is such a simple thing, and yet I'm guessing that most of us know someone who suffers from a bad back or bad knees or a constantly sore neck or burnt-out wrists and forearms from years of typing. Ridding the world of this type of pain would be revelatory for some. And for others, it would be a nice little bonus, easing their infrequent bouts of strained muscles after a run or their posture-based aches from a long flight or a road trip. In either case, a world with less pain, with more people enjoying the feel of their body, of using their body rather than cursing it. That seems pretty valuable to me. That seems like a goal worth pursuing. And exoskeletons are not the beginning or the end of this type of technology, of devices and systems and discoveries that are meant to be used but to blend into the background, working best in situations where they're not even commented upon. They're not status symbols. These are technologies that improve our capabilities but which come to feel more like extra limbs rather than cumbersome computers or gadgets. These are innovations that operate optimally when no one thinks to think of them. There's a lot of money being invested in what might broadly be called the passive human optimization industry, which produces technologies and systems meant to improve human capability without requiring much or any additional thought or action on the part of the user. I like to think of these types of innovations as background technologies, because in contrast to something like a smartphone, they're designed to take up less of our time and distract us less and tug on our attention less and exist, granting us new capabilities and solving our problems without demanding anything from us after they're installed. I would argue that smartphones and laptops and washing machines and cars can all improve our capabilities to a huge degree, but they also tug on our attention and they pull us away from other things. We have to interface with them differently than we interface with everything else in our lives. And that pulls our attention away from anything else that we could be paying attention to. Background technologies, on the other hand, blend seamlessly with what we're already doing. They exist and act without our needing to pull out a device or interrupt our lives in any way. Staring at our leg-based exoskeletons wouldn't provide us with any extra utility. We wear them, and they do things for us, and that's that. We don't stare at them while out on a date or while riding the bus. We don't play with our leg braces instead of reading a book or cooking a meal. Those little exoskeletons are just there, kicking butt, doing their thing, without needing an ounce of our input or attention. 
And as they evolve, they would ideally become even less intrusive, becoming more beige and unnoticed, integrating in such a way that we could easily forget they're there. We could come to take their tiny blessings for granted, and as a consequence, they would come to operate even better. There are already some fairly well-known examples of this type of technology on the market, these background technologies. In 2008, 105 swimming world records were broken, and 79 of those records were broken by people wearing one type of swimwear, the LZR, which is often pronounced as laser racer swimsuit, which is made by Speedo for competitive athletes. A few pieces of information from the Wikipedia page for the laser. Quote, the laser racer reduced skin friction drag 24% more than the previous Speedo swimsuit. Much like other suits used for high competition racing, laser racers allow for better oxygen flow to the muscles and hold the body in a more hydrodynamic position while repelling water and increasing flexibility. The Laser Pro features vertically stitched seams to minimize fluid resistance, while the seams of the Laser Elite, Laser Elite 2, and Laser X are ultrasonically welded to further reduce drag. The Laser Elite and Laser Elite 2 include patented core stabilizer and internal compression panels. Speedo also partnered with ANSYS, one of the world's leading engineering simulation software providers, in creating this suit. End quote. At the 2008 Summer Olympics in Beijing, swimmers wearing laser racer swimsuits won 94% of the gold medals that were available and broke 23 of the 25 records that were set at that event. Remember Michael Phelps? This was the Olympics where he made his mark and got famous for all the gold medals he won and records he broke. And guess which swimsuit he was wearing? Yep, Phelps was a laser racer wearer which isn't to say that he isn't an astounding athlete, but when it comes to breaking records, he had an advantage of sorts right out of the gates. The Worldwide Swimming Governing Body, FINA, F-I-N-A, initially endorsed the use of laser racer swimsuits, as early case studies showed that wearing such a garment would reduce the racing times achieved by swimmers by 1.9 to 2.2%, which is massive in swimming competitions, where fractions of a second can mean the difference between a win and a loss. But after the European short course championships that took place in Croatia at the end of 2008, at which 17 world records fell, again because of all the laser wearers, it was determined that something needed to be done, as not everyone had access to this new suit, and that meant there was a potentially unfair advantage enjoyed by some competitors over others. The final nail in the coffin came when athletes discovered that they could increase the benefits gained from wearing the laser racer by wearing two of them, one under the other, because among other benefits, the laser compresses the wearer's body and traps air in the suit, which increases buoyancy. The benefits of this doubling up proved to be so immense that some competitors claimed that it was essentially technological doping an advantage gained not by training, but through outside factors, not unlike taking steroids. In 2009, new rules were passed that banned full-body swimwear, in which led to new policies about the materials that were allowed to be used in the swimwear for competitions. 
these new rules took effect at the beginning of 2010. Now, again, a 2% decrease in racing time does not sound super impressive, but it was enough to help these swimmers break numerous records and win tons of gold medals. When combined with real talent and skill and training, it was enough to set a small group of people ahead of another group who were similarly talented and skilled and well-trained. But those small effects also add up when they are applied consistently every day to things like how we walk and how we sit, maybe how we sleep. Over time, a 2% improvement in any of these areas of our lives could bear very valuable fruit. And even more so if that percentage increases over time or improves when combined with other background technologies that themselves add another 2% or 5% and so on. Other innovations in this space take different shapes, like those of smartwatches and exercise bands, step counters and heartbeat monitors. You could also conceivably put things like pacemakers and vagus nerve stimulation devices in this category, which are implantable devices that you get installed and which help you deal with problems you might otherwise have, and without having to think about it in most cases. You might also include innovations in mattresses and chairs and desks and other furniture that we use every day as well. And still other technologies have moved in this direction by making use of novel interfaces, which means that they're generally not 100% passive and not completely relegated to the background, but instead try to make some of the other things that usually drag on our attention, like our smartphones, less interruptive. Google Glass, for instance, was a computer interface built into a pair of glasses. So you could glance up at any time and check your messages or get an answer to a question that you asked, and ostensibly could use computer-like technologies more intentionally, rather than having them dominate your life and your attention 24-7. This particular product did not do terribly well, in part because it was cumbersome to use and super socially awkward to wear and it seemed to break all kinds of social contracts. It had a camera built in, for instance, so many people worried that Google Glass wearers could be recording or photographing at any time, which in turn tends to change the way that people act and feel around these people who are using the device. I did an episode a while back about hands-free user interfaces, in particular the audio interfaces that are found in Amazon's Alexa devices and the Google Home ecosystem and in Apple's Siri. These could also fall into this category, though it really depends on how you use these interfaces. For several years, I've been on the lookout for some kind of tiny earbud or a similar device that I could unobtrusively wear at all times so that I could surreptitiously listen to a podcast or dictate notes or ask questions and do many other things that I currently use my phone for, but which would allow me to do them without ever needing to look at my phone. And I still haven't found such a device, nothing that would work for my specifications and use cases anyway. But I'm guessing it won't be long until we have more options in this space. These new at-home devices that are always listening for commands can mimic this utility pretty well, if only in certain environments. But they're also often used for completely different things, generally failing to replace existing distracting technologies and instead adding new distractions to the ones that already exist. So these are not currently technologies that I think are serving 
this same purpose, but they could someday, and I hope they do. Many other emerging technologies show a whole lot of promise in this regard, and if they're well utilized and evolve correctly, it may be that we'll be able to neatly blend them into society at some point without their succumbing to the Google Glass syndrome, a situation in which we're using technology that is too socially awkward or seen in a more generous light too far ahead of its time for us to use it regularly and unobtrusively. At the moment, though, as I said, both the Google Glass-style device and the voice-activated systems fail to replace existing distracting devices and blend into the background sufficiently. So we'll see where that goes. I'll be keeping an eye on it for sure. But there are a whole lot of other product types that are emerging that could fall into this category. I've seen some interesting prototypes of biometric tattoos over the last few years, which work like temporary tattoos in that they're not permanent and they can come off after a period of time. But while they are on your skin, they can report back information about your body, like your temperature, your stress level, and your hydration levels. There are pills that can do something similar for your internal processes. You swallow one of these tiny little devices, which is shaped like a pill, and it sends back information about your gut. In some cases, even including photos, if you're looking to locate an injury in your small intestine, for instance. And then that information will be sent to your doctor or to your smartphone via Bluetooth or Wi-Fi. There are a range of implantable technologies available these days, the most common of which is a tiny RFID chip, that's radio frequency identification chip, that most people seem to get implanted in the skin between their thumb and forefinger, and which is about the size of a grain of rice. The installation of this little chip is as easy as a quick jab with a syringe, and the device can be programmed to do all kinds of things, including allowing you to access private files on your devices, or allowing you to open up digitally locked doors without having a specific card or key for the purpose. A Swedish startup hub called Epicenter allows workers and startup members who work from their building to get this type of implant and to use it to access the building, to operate printers, to buy food and drinks, which is to swipe with their hand. Other people use these chips to store personal information that can later be accessed wirelessly via any device. This is often used to store sensitive files and passwords and things of that nature that you want to always have with you and that you want to keep secure. Conceivably, these types of technologies could evolve to be something that's always on, meaning you could get a semi-permanent biometric tattoo that would allow you to, at a glimpse, know how your body is doing. Maybe the coloration of your tattoo would change based on different variables. Or you could have a chart tattooed on your forearm that would show you exactly how many more calories you should eat, which vitamins you need more of, things of that nature. This would be something like contemporary workout trackers and heart monitors and calorie counters, but without requiring an additional external device, and with better information, because it would be taking readings directly from your skin. Similarly, the biometric pill of the future could become something like a pacemaker, but rather than being somewhat bulky and requiring surgery, it could be installed in the same way those little RFID chips are installed today, using a syringe and then injecting it somewhere obscure on your body where you won't notice it. 
These technologies would be immediately useful to people who need access to certain bodily information regularly, like people with diabetes or heart conditions. But it could conceivably provide an additional self-awareness to the rest of us as well, about why we feel the way we feel, and how we might better treat and fuel our bodies. Again, though, this technology would be most useful if it wasn't in our faces and didn't require any additional effort or gadgets or attention on our part. It would ideally become something like a new awareness, a new collection of things that we just know about ourselves without having to think about it. And as a result, we would be able to act accordingly and treat ourselves better. Another technological pathway that might help us achieve the same is found in nanotechnology, which I should mention is often kind of a magic word that's thrown around by anyone wanting to explain how something inconceivable happened in science fiction. It's akin to saying it just works in some cases, because it's such a broad field and can mean so many things and it has so much potential, but it's also fringy enough that we understand the fundamentals and can see a huge number of possibilities but have not yet rubbed up against all the limitations of reality that we'll no doubt discover as we learn more. But some initial applications might be similar to the biometric pill or tattoo concepts, wherein we would have a tiny army of nanobots roaming around our bodies, helping us out in myriad different ways. They could bulk up our disease-fighting systems if we were to be assaulted by some new and dangerous pathogen or contagion. They could help us recover after a hard workout by filtering out acid and repairing muscle tissue. They could report back on aspects of our bodies that pills and skin-based tattoos could not accurately measure. Potentially, at some point, they could even help kill off tumors and repair old injuries and help us grow stronger muscle fibers and more resilient internal organs. Much of what's spoken about in this field right now is still based on the realm of science fiction to some degree, but there's a reason that so many people seem to think this is a technological path that shows such immense promise. We can already see ways to make these sorts of things happen, and now it's just a matter, in some cases at least, of working through years of tedious experimentation until the tech is commonplace and safe enough to operate well on a scale and for commercial purposes. For nanotechnology and other innovations of that type, by the way, we would also need new regulations and laws to ensure bad guys don't use them for nefarious purposes and to ensure that well-meaning but penny-pinching businesses do not produce inferior versions of the product that have detrimental side effects, because there is a lot of damage that can be caused to the human body at the nanoscale. And even setting aside doomsday scenarios like gray goo, which is essentially a cloud of self-replicating nanobots that can take apart the entire universe to make more of themselves, there's a whole lot that we'll need to make sure we get right before any of us see nanotechnology-based products of this kind on the market. Now, there are other technologies of the background variety that are not just relatively safe due to their very nature, but also currently today being produced, if only in relatively small batches. Custom-printed shoes, for instance, while less groundbreaking than blood-borne nanobots killing cancers from within our bodies, could be very beneficial to our health and our habits and our capabilities, at least as beneficial as well-functioning exoskeletons. 
One of the first well-known brands to enter the 3D-printed shoe fray was Nike, when they produced a football cleat, that's American football, with a 3D-printed sole back in 2013. This football cleat was called, and I'm not making this up, the Nike Vapor Laser Talon, and it was produced with a custom-made sole to perfectly fit the wearer, and then laser-sealed, all of which apparently helped keep the shoe super lightweight, and it also improved the wearer's zero step, which is the initial step of a run, and which apparently helps determine how quickly they get where they need to go. Now, a lot of the information available on this particular shoe model is steeped in marketing speak, so it's hard to tell if the purported gains in running capability are legit, or just a branding effort to justify Nike's efforts to invest further in this technology and move ahead of their competitors in the custom-printed shoe field. Either way, though, this effort did cause the rest of the industry to take notice, and now there are a handful of major brands dipping their toes into this technology, the most recent of which was Adidas, which has released a new shoe for which it plans to fit customers in-store and then 3D print a custom shoe sole for them in-store in the near future. Again, even if the gains from customized clothing and footwear like this are small, if they are also passive and work well in aggregate, then we could be looking at significant improvements to many of the things we do all day every day in the relative near future. If all of our clothes operated this way, optimizing aspects of how we work out, of how we move, of how we stand, of how we run or jump or sit in a chair, even small improvements could add up to something truly valuable. Whether that means fewer aches and pains and better posture, or increased performance in terms of how fast we can run, how high we can jump, and how quickly we can recover from exertion. The value of having these little upgrades available and not having to do anything extra to activate them is an interesting proposition. Now, there are many other technologies that could fit into this background technology category, but which I won't dive into too deeply here on this episode. I've spoken before about augmented reality and voice interfaces in past episodes. And I also did an episode on neural laces fairly recently. And these are technologies that, if implemented well and widely, could have a massive impact on how we live day to day. Augmented reality would provide always-on overlay access to information about the world as we need it, while also giving us the option to connect to each other without having to pull out a separate device. This, of course, would require that we're able to access this augmented reality in a passive, unobtrusive way, and that capability is not available right now. The closest I've seen to a realistic means of accomplishing this is augmented reality-enabled contact lenses, and the last I saw, they were still trying to make sure they could get a battery to work on that scale, much less project anything valuable onto your eye using one. So this is a technology that, for the near future at least, will still be obtrusive and unwieldy. It'll require big old goggles and headsets or holding up your phone to view that augmented reality layer. It might be cool as hell, but it won't be a dramatic improvement over our smartphones in the sense of wanting to move technology into the background. The same is true with these voice user interface-based devices, including the little earbud and microphone combo that I mentioned wanting for myself before. For these innovations to be useful in passive ways, 
to remove the need for certain technologies, rather than just replacing one impediment and one distraction with another, they need to be integrated into our lives conveniently and unobtrusively. And at the moment, they're just not there. Nor have I seen any just-over-the-horizon solutions to making them less a neat gimmick and more a must-have lifestyle-improving commodity. There are a few narrow use cases in which I can see them being incredibly beneficial and relatively unobtrusive, but much of their utility today seems to be tied up in buying things from Amazon and turning on music without having to push a button to turn on that music. Things that will no doubt be great for some people and useful components of a more fully fleshed out technological set in the future, but they're still kind of gimmicky and unnecessary for most people right now, and that will probably be the case for the next several years. The neural lace is a little more edgy, kind of like nanotechnology in a way, though perhaps slightly more achievable, at least in its most basic form, than having clouds of nanobots running through your bloodstream. This, too, however, is not a great near-term solution, as it requires surgery of some kind to install it, and even for a diehard technological enthusiast, weaving a device into one's brain is still quite the commitment and probably a step too far for most people. So at least for the time being, there may be a time in which the trade-off is more worthwhile. But right now, due to the type of procedure required and the general lack of payoffs for having such a procedure right now, it doesn't seem like something that is going to be terribly useful as a background technology. In addition to possible augmentations for each of us personally, there are little changes that we could see in our environments that would have similar effects, in that they would reduce the amount of time we spend with our devices and free us up to do more of whatever we like with increased capabilities and reach. Smart home technology is a field that is just now starting to heat up, but which, in my estimation at least, still has a ways to go before it's super common and actually useful. Very much like the audio user interface devices in general, many of the smart home appliances, which are often connected to those voice-activated interfaces, and services available today are solutions to problems that simply don't exist, where they are trivial tricks to impress friends who haven't seen them done before, but they're not terribly useful beyond that, beyond being a fun novelty. They're important steps for the development of the technologies involved, but they're also very early ancestors of what this family of technologies could become someday, namely an accessible and intuitive environment customization structure that would allow our spaces to be whatever we need them to be. And I know that's a really broad statement, and there are a lot of ways to interpret and accomplish that, but I am guessing that none of those directions that we might want something like that to go involve owning a refrigerator that will buy you milk when you start to run out. At least not until that task is merged into a greater system of tasks that make it make more sense on scale. Wireless internet has changed the world in many ways, and wireless electricity could very well do the same. This is a technology that already exists in some forms. Inductive charging is found on many smartphones these days and allows you to charge your phone by setting it down on a specially made surface, which then transfers energy to the phone's battery via an electromagnetic field. There's a company called Osea that makes a technology called Coda, and Coda, C-O-T-A, does for energy something like what your router does for the internet. It creates a 
kind of Wi-Fi for electricity. You have a coded device in your room, and it sends out energy to everything with a receiver that is in that room as well. That means if your device has the right chip in it, you can charge it wirelessly at all times just by being in that room. It'll pick up the signal from the Coda router. It's not really a router, but it works that way automatically, and it will send energy one watt at a time, 100 times per second, to your phone, to your watch, to your smart home device, or whatever else. If everything in your home that requires electricity had such a chip in it, you could conceivably charge absolutely everything wirelessly. And the Wi-Fi analogy here is not perfect in terms of how it actually works, but the end-use functionality of it seems to work almost exactly the same way. So if you picture your router in your home sending internet wirelessly to all of your devices, this would do the same thing but for electricity, and it would charge your devices wirelessly. This is a technology that's been in development for many years now, but which has only just recently been demonstrable to the point where they're courting tech companies to see who wants to start putting their receiver chips inside their devices. It's a good bet that if one company can do this, then so can others. And I'm guessing we'll see a standard for sending energy through the air very soon, just as we already have standards for sending data through the air via Wi-Fi. I'm guessing we'll also see a whole lot more competitors in the very near future. And the result of this technology, once it's common enough, could be a world without wires, or at least a home without them, which is kind of a small thing in a way, but it's also kind of a very big thing in that it would change the structure of how we live and what our spaces look like. Feng shui-wise alone, it would do a great deal for our attitudes and the looks of our spaces and the danger that sometimes exists when there are wires laying around all over the place. In terms of making people feel more comfortable and less stressed within their space too, I'm guessing there will be some difference. And even if it's a 2% improvement in mood because your space doesn't feel so cluttered, well again, that can add up. It could be a nice little upgrade across the board and it could be nicely passive. It could also greatly reduce the low battery anxiety that a lot of people feel all day long as a result of their devices being so integral and their concern about their smartphone running out of battery before they get home. That could disappear completely. It could be a thing of the past. One more collection of technologies that could fit under this header, which is a collection of systems as well, is the on-demand economy's fleet of cars and drones and buyable products in general. Deliveries and services and rides and so much more is now available exactly when we need it. This means we can prioritize access over ownership more easily, which if we're aiming for a world in which we're all empowered but not forced to carry around a bag full of devices, would be a really wonderful move in the right direction. That you could, perhaps, walk out into the world with nothing other than an interface of some kind. And that, as mentioned before, could be an audible interface, it could be a mind-based interface, it could be on the sleeve of your shirt, and through that interface you could get anything else you require exactly when you need it. This could cause the world to change dramatically. Much of the work that we do and the things that we build and the goals that we have revolve around acquisition and consumption and the stress that we feel as a result of both of these things, of trying to have what we need when we need it, and as a result, stockpiling and preparing. It is a fair bet that these habits and dispositions will shift when it becomes clear that we don't need to worry about things like that anymore, that we don't need to hoard in order to be prepared, that we don't need to stockpile 
to have what we need when we need it. That we do not need to pre-plan for every eventuality. The resources are all there and they are all accessible. And all we need to do is to tell the world to tell these background technologies that are always there but unnoticed what we need when we need it. And they will deliver. Now, these technologies are still in their early stages, but they've already changed a great deal in terms of how we operate. Ride-sharing technologies like Uber and Lyft, for instance, have dramatically changed the car market and have shifted the numbers of an entire generation toward not wanting or needing to own a car. Streaming services like Netflix and Spotify allow people to access media whenever they like without needing to buy every individual album or movie and hold on to them in order to access them when they want to view or listen to them again. Imagine what might happen if more resources, especially things we may have traditionally thought we could never survive without owning, were suddenly available widely and cheaply and conveniently on demand. Imagine what might disappear from your home because you no longer needed to make that investment. You can focus on the value gained rather than the device or object that provided that value, and which was the thing that previously you were prioritizing, that you were spending your time, energy, and resources on. What might society look like with these types of background innovations in place? What might happen when these technologies become more powerful and more normal, when they are ever-present and anywhere you go, you can count on a certain mesh of technologies and resources being available and accessible? You could conceivably end up in a world in which no obvious forms of technology, in the sense that we use the word most commonly today, the cables and screens and electrical outlets and metal and glass and plastic shapes, when none of those are visible at all, or at least these technologies would not be as prominent, they wouldn't be the center of everything that we do, because we wouldn't need them or we wouldn't need to access them directly in order to benefit from the value that they provide. At some critical point in the future, we may have the ability to seamlessly integrate our technology with our bodies, whether via augmentation that we install, maybe through something like a neural lace, or maybe in the form of nanobots, or something similar, constantly cycling through our bodies, and maybe through biological manipulation. At that point, we would no longer need much of what we take for granted today. Even things like food and shelter could become optional if we could, for instance, completely moderate and modulate our body temperature and how we take in and use energy and how we feel and how we respond to external stimuli. The concept of cities and communities could come to mean something very different if we are all potentially in contact with each other 24-7 or can go private whenever we like using these internal interfaces. And that communication could come to feel like a new sense that we have access to, something like telepathy. We would be aware of each other, just like in person, but in our heads instead. Now, under such circumstances, and assuming these connections would be just as real as quote-unquote real connections today, why would we need cities? Why would we need homes? Why would we need anything at all other than our own bodies? Why couldn't we prioritize where we go and what we do and who we spend time with, how we spend our time? I think we'd come to realize under such circumstances that a lot of the structures and systems and norms that we assume are necessary today could actually be done away with if we chose to do away with them. These seemingly necessary frameworks would not be so necessary anymore. 
and that would liberate us to think quite differently about a great many things. Now, that's an extreme case, something that would, in many ways, allow us to return to a state that, from the outside at least, might look similar to that of our forebearers, human beings wandering around naked in nature, if we so desired, unworried by many of the things that stress us out today, because our technology would be so deeply embedded in the background that we would not need to wear it like jewelry. We wouldn't need to utilize it in the way that we use it today. So we could enjoy that connection with nature, that connection with each other. A lot of these things that are romanticized today, but commonly put on the back burner in favor of other perceived priorities. And we could still, at the same time, be a spacefaring civilization, because we would still contain, we would still hold all the same powers we have today. We would still have the capacity to create, to share, to learn, to experiment. We would be empowered by technology, but we would be fused with it rather than interfacing with technology that exists outside of ourselves, which in turn requires a great deal of our attention and resources and economic output to keep running. In the interim, though, it's likely that we'll see a lot more passive technology of a less dramatic sort, though which might still be quite an upgrade by many standards compared to what we have today. The exoskeleton augmentation mentioned in the original article is the type of upgrade that could be integrated into all of our clothing. Imagine if suddenly everything you wore allowed you to run a bit faster, to consume less energy to climb stairs, to reinforce your posture and support your musculature, and encouraged the use of the right muscle groups and preserved your knees and other injury-prone joints. Even if the upgrades were minor, say 5% for each of these categories, that would still be a substantial boon for humanity. And like most technologies, chances are that those upgrades would increase with time, starting at 5%, but inching upward until all of us had Iron Man suit-like capabilities built into our clothing. We probably wouldn't be shooting lasers from our hands, probably, but why not injury prevention? Why not levitation? Why not a bulletproof exterior? These are all technologies that exist separately today, but combined, refined, and made passive integrated into things so that we don't have to think about using them. They could lead to dramatically improved lives for many people, and broadly increased capabilities for the masses. And what if this same clothing were able to interact with the smart technology we have in our homes and environments, and could interface with other hardware and software via wireless communication and wireless charging? Your entire wardrobe would be your smartphone. And that could mean projecting information on your shirt sleeve or rigging your socks to vibrate when you have a message and clicking your heels to have that message play in the earbud that is tiny and innocuous enough that you can leave it in your ear all day. Our clothing could produce a lot of the energy it needs by harnessing the kinetic power that we create when we move and any excess could be wirelessly sent back to the smart grid. And if we're sitting around for too long and not producing enough energy ourselves, we could wirelessly pull down electricity from that same smart grid. A lot of the potential in this space comes from the interaction between an environment empowered by these background technologies and us as individuals empowered by other background technologies. Our exoskeleton clothing gets more powerful when paired with urban design that takes our new walking capabilities into account, perhaps encouraging more movement each day while knowing that we're all capable of it. And we'd need to ensure that there was a smart grid in place for electricity and other key resources so that we could push and pull from it when necessary. 
passively, without worrying about the one-way hardwired limitations that exist on most grids around the world today. Such changes would almost certainly lead to shifts in other aspects of life as well, not just in our physical environment. Legally, we would need many new laws and regulations to designate how these devices interact with each other, who has control of what data, and how we can ensure privacy and liberty when everything about us, from the tiniest detail all the way up to the macro, is being collected and utilized by potentially hackable devices using software controlled by corporate entities, which almost certainly have different goals than the average individual. We'd also need to upgrade our governmental structures, as increased communication capabilities alone have been shown to wreak havoc on the status quo in that department, and we'd need to figure out how to legislate in a world in which we're all increasingly connected all the time, and in which information is shared at the speed of thought. How might we deal with something like a terrorist attack under those circumstances? How might we filter information to ensure free speech is maintained, but false information is not given the same credibility as demonstrable fact? If every one of us can summon data whenever we want it, with the blink of an eye or a mumbled question to the tiny device in our ear, how do we make sure the data being received is as correct as possible? Aspects of governance will need to shift to take into account these increasingly vital questions, as the right hack at the right time could cause a huge percentage of the population to not just be misinformed, but to act reflexively based on fake information, coming from a source they have come to trust. We will likely become more capable of handling many aspects of our lives ourselves as a result of these technologies, but other aspects, especially those related to the resources and the information that we'll depend on, and the maintenance of that background technology, will need to be more carefully handled and defended by the government. There are also alternative economic models to consider alongside these new governmental structures. Guaranteed basic income is the possible beginning of a new reality that could emerge from the confluence of these types of technologies. If we focus on building a society in which no one has to work, or perhaps everyone only has to work 10 hours per week, we'd have to adjust a lot of how we organize and operate. We need to adjust how we spend our time, how we see ourselves as people, as members of society, how we stratify socially, if we do in fact continue to stratify. We conceivably already have the capacity to make something like this happen, at least in some limited way. It's still debatable as to whether this would be a smart path to take, but it is an option, and one that is gaining more steam as we look around at the tech we currently have available, and the problems that that technology is causing coming of age in a world that is not built to interact well with autonomous systems and superhuman-level artificial intelligences. A work-free world may not be the future we opt for, but some new future, some new way of operating, will almost certainly be necessary as more background technologies are installed and slowly spin up, altering everything we've come to expect and take for granted. Saving time, freeing up energy and mental capacity, becoming more physically capable, both while in our prime and in our later years, and figuring out the million little ways we can augment ourselves and improve upon our effectiveness so that less of our attention need be spent on the tedious and the draining and the monotonous and the unchallenging and the unfulfilling. That's the potential of these technologies. These gadgets are all tools, and if we don't use them correctly, that's really kind of our fault. Yes, we can make tools that do nothing but blow up in our faces and make life worse, and that's our fault too, though perhaps in a different way. But the tools that are not flawed at their core, and which could be useful 
if applied correctly. It's up to us to figure out what that means for us, which tools we should use, and how. And then, importantly, what do we do with what we free up as a result? What do we do with that time and energy and those resources that we save with these incremental improvements? Increased capacity and capability is wonderful, but it's of dubious value if all it does is result in an increased amount of tedium each day, with more buttons pushed in the same amount of time and more widgets produced with the same amount of effort. Instead of making us more distracted and less human, as many of us have come to fear, technologies used intentionally could help us focus more on what's important, spend more of our time, energy, and resources on those vital things, and aid us in becoming more human than we've ever been before. The book that I want to recommend today is a book that I read many, many years ago, but which has recently come back into vogue as, I think it's Stars, the Stars Network, I might be wrong on that, made a TV version of it. And the book is American Gods, and it's by the author Neil Gaiman, who is just an amazing author to begin with. His work in general is very enjoyable. But this book in particular is a favorite of mine. It's set in a world in which gods exist, but they only exist based on people believing in them, and that kind of defines the level to which they exist and how powerful they are. And this world in which this story is set is the United States, and the traditional gods of old have migrated over to the United States over the years, and so they still exist there, and they are living their lives the best they can. And they are trying to survive in a world in which the new religion of America are things like media and celebrities and technology and drugs, which have themselves emerged as new age gods in a way. And this book is essentially about the conflict between those two groups, the traditional gods, the Greek gods and Egyptian gods and old Russian gods and entities like that, versus the new gods of the media and party culture and technology and things like that. And the story follows a guy named Shadow who just got out of prison. I'm not going to give away much more than that, but he is kind of brought into a spiral of events that is occurring without really knowing what he's getting into. He's an excellent protagonist, and the world in which he's interacting is delightful. I just finished watching the TV series. That is also an excellent translation. It's somewhat different from the book, but it is really well done. So the TV show is wonderful as well if you get the chance, but the book... American Gods is one that I highly recommend reading, if you haven't already, and that is by Neil Gaiman. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. My blog is at exilelifestyle.com, and you can find me pretty much everywhere on the internet at Colin is my name. You can find the show notes for this episode and every episode at letsnotethings.com. Thank you so much for listening. I am Colin Wright, and I will talk to you again next week. Mm-hmm.